Whether or not you're into history, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. History on Fire. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of History on Fire. First things first, I want to thank all the wonderful people who are supporting the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history on fire for as little as $5 a month, which is really what you give to a waiter you don't particularly like if you go out for dinner kind of thing so hopefully it's not too prohibitive of a price not only do you support the podcast and you keep it going which is something that i deeply thank you for but you also get bonus content every month i create a mini episode exclusive for supporters i'll probably start a duplicate of what i'm doing on patreon on substack as well but that's coming up, it's not set up yet. Patreon, on the other hand, is set up. Uh, special thanks to Mark Chang, Chimi Moxam, Jesun Serenteria, and Charles Accorso, who are supporting at the highest possible level on Patreon. Also a shout-out to DakotaPureBison.com. Nice people from South Dakota who are supplying me with some of the healthiest meat you could possibly eat. Their bison are naturally raised, no hormones or antibiotics, so if you are in the market for steaks, ground bison, jerky, or a bunch of other bison-based products, you can do no better than Dakota Pure Bison. Use the code HOF10 for a 10% discount at your order at dakotapurebison.com. Last thing before we get going with the episode... Just want to let you know that uh, currently scheduled for April 2024 is a historical tour of Japan that I would love to be part of. So it looks like if uh, the signups are going well, if uh, if we get enough people, we're going to go off to Japan and explore a whole lot of samurai history, particularly the early period, around the time of the Genpei War up until the attempted Mongol invasion. So if this is something that interests you, probably the easiest thing is just to Google it. You can Google geeknationtours.com. Again, that's geeknationtours.com. And you can uh, input uh, Classic Samurai Tour, which would give you all the info you could possibly want about it. Having said all this, let's get rolling. Many religions, many philosophies, many ethical systems formulated by societies across the globe, they all tend to frown on killing other human beings. Homicide usually ranks pretty high on the gravity scale of crimes you can be accused of. The thou shall not kill concept is something found in many times and places throughout history. Of course, this has not prevented humans from killing each other with gusto during every single century we have been around as a species. 
while it's true that so many societies pay lip service to the no-killing rule, there always seems to be an exception that the wannabe killers invoke to be able to murder the hell out of anyone they want to kill and at the same time feel like they are not breaking their own ethical systems. In plenty of cases, these rationalizations smack of hypocrisy. They seem like desperate attempts to avoid taking a serious look in the mirror and instead to be able to have your murderous cake and eat it too. But what we look at today is different. Some of the protagonists in our tale become heroes by saving hundreds of lives. But in order to do that, they have to take hundreds of other lives. And as it turns out, maybe sometimes, just maybe, ethically heroic behavior does pass through homicide. If there is such a thing as a perfectly morally justified killing, our story today is Exhibit A. But again, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to decide the moral implications of it all, but this seemed like a good candidate. Before we get into our tale, uh, let me give credit to my sources. Usually I don't rely too heavily on any one single source. There's a whole variety of them that I consult, and I mean, even in this case, I used a bunch of different sources, but the prime one, the top one by far, uh, is a book by Hampton Sides called Ghost Soldiers. Ghost Soldiers is an absolute masterpiece. If you want to read some great, entertaining history book, Ghost Soldiers is up on the list. I've also used for these a uh, couple of other equally well-written books, uh, Hour of Redemption, and another one called uh, The Great Trade on Kabanatuan. Um, excellent books. All of them have um, great research, brilliant storytelling. Um, they ended up inspiring a movie called The Great Raid. So there's quite a bit about this story, but not as much as you would think, considering how, how much this story can capture the imagination. But in any case, uh, okay then, having given the proper nod to the phenomenal work done by the authors of the books just mentioned, let's begin. Ours is a World War II story, taking place in the Philippines. You know, for the sake of context, before jumping into the thick of the action, let me mention, at least briefly, how it came to be that American and Japanese forces found themselves fighting in the Philippines. For almost half a century before World War II broke out, the Philippines had been under American control. You know, back in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the Filipinos had welcomed American help in getting rid of Spanish domination over their lands. You know, the Spaniards had been uh, held the Philippines as a colonial possessions for centuries. By the end of the 1800s, the Filipinos were more than happy to kiss them goodbye and try to claim independence. So when the Americans showed up in the Spanish-American War, in what looked like uh, an attempt to help the Filipinos get rid of the Spanish, the Filipinos couldn't be any happier. However, gratitude gave way to concern when they noticed that the Americans weren't getting ready to go home at the end of the conflict. You know, the way the Filipinos felt was, okay, thank you, you did great, that was great help, but now you can leave. 
And when instead it became clear that, after kicking out the Spaniards, the Americans, far from supporting Filipino independence, were planning on becoming the Philippines' new colonial masters, many were less than thrilled with this news. So at the end of the Spanish-American War, American troops found themselves fighting against the people, you know, the very people they had supposedly liberated, in quotes. Specifically, those Filipinos who dare demand independence rather than accept American invasion. So the conflict that resulted from this was bloody and brutal. Between 1899 and the first few years of the 1900s, more than 200,000 Filipinos died during the fighting against the Americans. Some estimates go even up to 1 million. But even if you go with the so-called low estimate of 200,000, that's clearly far from a low number. So that tells you this was a, wasn't a minor operation at the end of a war. This actually had enormous numbers of casualties. In so many ways, that's a really ugly chapter in history. You know, to give you a flavor for it, in November 1901, the Manila correspondent of the Philadelphia Ledger wrote, The present war is no bloodless, opera booth engagement. Our men have been relentless, have killed to exterminate men, women, children, prisoners and captives. Active insurgents and suspected people from lads of ten up, the idea prevailing that the Filipino as such was little better than a dog. Now, at some point, I'd like to do an episode on this story, but for now, I'll stop here. You know, I'll keep it simple. After the fighting was done, American rule over the Philippines continued, and it was definitely paternalistic, but it wasn't too terrible. So, you know, at least there was that. After a bloody war that killed uh, hundreds of thousands of Filipinos, at least American rule wasn't as bad as it could have been. So there's that. Now, fast forward through a few decades of American rule, and by the time World War II knocks on the doors of the United States, the Philippines are still under American control. And it doesn't take a geographical genius to figure out that Japan is a lot closer to the Philippines than Hawaii is. So it's not exactly surprising that when Japan decided to open hostilities with the United States, the Philippines would be in their crosshairs. By the way, for the sake of keeping this story simple, we are not going into the motivations why Japan attacked the US and the whole rationale behind World War II in the Pacific. Let it suffice to say that within hours of the surprise attack against Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked the Philippines, destroying several American air bases. Now, neutralizing American air power was just step one before the land invasion would begin. General Douglas MacArthur was the head US commander in the Philippines. This was not exactly a happy job, considering that the Philippines were already held to be indefensible. The idea widely popular, well, I don't know if popular is the correct term, but you know, accepted at least in American military circle, was that 
the United States should focus on beating Germany first and then later try to take back what inevitably would be lost to the Japanese during the initial phases of the war. This was obviously terrible news for the Americans and Filipinos fighting for MacArthur, since they were more or less abandoned to their destiny. And at the same time, they were asked to fight for as long as possible in what everyone understood to be an unwinnable campaign. To supplement his forces, MacArthur recruited a whole bunch of Filipinos um, among his men. And now some of them were more than happy to fight for the US, others were less than enthusiastic or in some cases even not too willing to be drafted. But nonetheless, mass numbers of Filipinos joined the American forces. Quickly, the decision was made to abandon Manila, you know, the, the capital, and retreat instead to the Bataan Peninsula. The strategy required the Navy to supply these troops that would resist in the Bataan Peninsula. Problem was that much of the American Navy was wrecked at Pearl Harbor. So the troops that were to fight in Bataan were really left with next to no supplies. You know, MacArthur kept trying to cheer them on, insisting that help would come and that his men should keep fighting hard. But by February 1942, the United States President Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to retreat to Australia and basically leave to fight another day. MacArthur was conflicted about abandoning his men but apparently not so conflicted as to disobey. His promise upon leaving that he would return was small consolation to the men abandoned in Bataan. You know, promises were sweet and all, but he was going to be safe in Australia while his men were starving, sick and about to be overrun by the enemy in Bataan. In the meantime, you know, MacArthur kept encouraging his men to carry on and refusing to surrender, but then again, in the eyes of at least some of those men dying on a daily basis, battling the Japanese army in the Philippines, those were easy words from the guy who fled the country while telling others to keep fighting. Now, by saying that, I don't mean to criticize MacArthur. Like, I don't know what he was to be in that situation. I'm not criticizing MacArthur or the decision made. I'm just saying that was the perception by at least some of the men, if not all of definitely not all of them, but, but some of the men. Initially, most Americans had not taken Japan seriously as a military power. Uh, those stationed in the Philippines expected that if war came, they would win quickly. There was a bit of a notion of racial superiority that was popular in the American army. Incidentally, this idea of racial superiority was also popular among the Japanese who saw Americans as inferior, so they both held fairly racist views toward one another. In the American case, those notions have been proven wrong by the facts since the Japanese were just steamrolling through the Philippines. One of the remaining American commanders in the Philippines didn't quite see the idea that Japan could be easily defeated. He was, you know, by now he had been sensitized to the fact that that wasn't going to happen. Major General Edward King had command over tens of thousands of Americans and Filipinos. 
and on April 9th he made the decision to surrender. He said, if I do not surrender to the Japanese, Bataan will be known as the greatest slaughter in history. King didn't bother consulting with his superiors because he knew that they wouldn't give him permission to surrender. So he did it anyway, despite expecting to be court-martialed. He simply couldn't bear have his men keep dying like flies in an unwinnable fight. You know, if he had to pay a price for it in the form of a court-martial, so be it. By the time American forces surrendered, they were physically and emotionally wiped out. One soldier stated, rather poetically, that even our hair was tired. Most of them had caught a whole variety of diseases that were no longer common in the United States. Author Hampton Sides writes, their bodies course with every warm and pathogen a hot jungle can visit upon a starved and weakened constitution. Dang fever, amoebic dysentery, bacillary dysentery, tertian malaria, cerebral malaria, typhus, typhoid fever. So what the Americans were going through is that they were fighting a war while they were riddled with diseases. In some way, this is very similar, albeit not quite as bad, to the experience of Native Americans during the centuries of having to fight off European invasions while at the same time dying at insanely high rates from European diseases. Before surrendering, American and Filipino troops destroyed most of their weapons so the Japanese couldn't use them. Theoretically speaking, the extreme suffering that American and Filipino troops experience should have been alleviated once they surrendered. Now, from that point on, they would spend the rest of the war in POW camps with medicine and food, two things that they had not had much of in the previous few weeks. Unfortunately, that was not going to be the case. A horrific situation was about to become even more horrific. The men in charge of the Japanese forces invading the Philippines Lieutenant General Masaharu Homma had every intention of treating the American and Filipino men who had surrendered at least semi-decently. In terms of politics and temperament, Homma was much more mellow than most of his colleagues. He was a moderate, strongly opposed to the rabid, aggressive, extreme nationalism popular in Japanese military circles. He had even ruffled plenty of feathers by openly criticizing the atrocities committed by the Japanese army against the civilian population during the rape of Nanjing. Now, considering that in Japan there are still to this day people who deny the events of the rape of Nanjing and try to justify it, the fact that Homa during the war condemned those very atrocities, that tells you that, you know, he was not typical for the time. He was taking some brave and rather unpopular stances. He was an unusual guy in more ways than one. At 6'2", you know, he stood 6'2 tall, which is uh, for 1 meter and about 87 centimeters in the metric system. Uh, 
he towered over most other Japanese soldiers. He was considered a romantic idealist, you know, he, he had a reputation for drinking and as a bit of a playboy. Women loved him and he definitely loved them. He was known as the poet general because of his artistic tendencies. He was in favor of democracy, he actually liked a lot about Western culture, loved Hollywood movies. So on paper, he looked like the American and Filipino POWs couldn't have fallen in better hands. And by saying this, I'm in no way making apologies for what happened next, which is as horrifying as it gets. This is just to, you know, all this stuff about how must seeming to be actually a fairly nice guy is just to help us understand what, you know, what would become as the, known as the Bataan Death March. It was no part of some evil plan on Homa's part. His, the original plan to relocate POWs miles away was considered by most, including harsh critics of Japanese policies, as more than reasonable. The Japanese plan for the POWs was to have them march for a while, then climb in trucks and be driven to the railway where trains would take them within eight miles from a POW camp known as Camp O'Donnell. All in all, the marching component required the POWs to walk for somewhere between 60 and 70 miles, um, depending on whose estimates you trust, uh, which is somewhere between 96 and 112 kilometers. So what went wrong? Well, to start with, most POWs were simply too weak for the march before it even started. You know, the Japanese did not know just how messed up the American and Filipino forces were by the time they surrendered. And so their estimate that they could march all these miles, that was very optimistic. So a march that may not have been such a big deal for soldiers in full health would turn into a horrendous ordeal for soldiers that could barely stand due to weeks of starvation, bouts of tropical diseases, and sometimes battle wounds. Add to this that General Homma was under tremendous pressure from his superiors. According to their ambitious plan, he was supposed to have conquered the Philippines by February 1842. And, and instead, by now, it was April, and he still had not achieved a full success. You know, despite the surrender at Bataan, there were still plenty of American troops fighting at Corregidor. Um, Homma's non-nationalistic, non-extremist attitude had made him a less-than-beloved figure among the more fanatical elements in the Japanese military hierarchy. So at this juncture, Homma was majorly distracted with trying to finish the conquest of the Philippines and thereby frustrating his superior's effort to destroy his reputation and career. He had formulated a plan for the POWs that seemed humane enough, so satisfied with that, he stopped paying attention to the issue, trusting that his subordinates would handle things well without needing too much oversight. As it turns out, this would be a major mistake with catastrophic consequences. One of the wrenches in the original plan was that the number of POWs 
far exceeded Japanese estimates. They had expected somewhere around 25,000 soldiers to surrender, but instead they were dealing with at least three times that much and maybe more. Also, as mentioned, the POWs were much sicker and weaker than anticipated, so most of them couldn't march, and yet there were just not enough uh, trucks to move them. Here is how Hutter Hampton sites describe the situation. The Bataan Death March, as the event later came to be called by the American media, took place not according to plan, but rather as a result of the chaos that flourished under a plan that was fatally flawed. And in another passage says, once it became apparent that the original evacuation scheme was radically out of step with the circumstances on the ground, the Japanese failed to alter the plan to accommodate new facts. Their estimate of the number of prisoners was off, incredibly, by as many as 60,000 people, and their assessment of the health and stamina of the Phil American forces was equally off base. So what they should have done was to quickly change plans. But again, author Hampton Sites explain why that did not happen. But the Japanese army, for all its many strengths, had rarely demonstrated a talent for reversing course in midstream once an error was recognized. Steeped in a rigid Confucian influence culture in which an order was considered final and any attempt to change it imponed the wisdom of the superior who conceived and issued it, the Japanese war planners were bold in action but often deficient in the improvisational skills needed for quick and supple reaction. So what happens is that nobody informs General Homma because none of his subordinates wanted to be the one to tell him he, they couldn't make his plan work. So the officers in charge as kept trying to make the original plan work despite mountains of evidence that he wasn't going to. So in this light, as we saw in the quote by Sides earlier, the Bataan Death March was not so much a premeditated atrocity, but rather the result of organizational mistakes coupled with a terrible breakdown in discipline united with some serious racism. Now, another aspect playing a role in what was about to happen had everything to do with major problems in the culture of the Japanese army. To put it bluntly, the Japanese military was steeped in brutality. And I'm not even talking about Japanese brutality against everyone else, of which there's plenty of. I'm talking about the brutality in the ranks being the norm. You know, with absolute regularity, higher ranks would beat the living hell out of lower ranks for the most trivial offenses. Needless to say, this level of sadism masquerading as discipline did a number on many Japanese soldiers. In some ways, it's the classic weird psychological process of the boss uh, yell at you at work, so you go home and take it out on your spouse who slap the kids and the kids kick the dog and the dog bites a stranger. Right, it's the mechanism why you are on the receiving hand of abuse and you can't really dish it back or defend yourself maybe because the other party has something over you. So you just take it out on the next person that just happened to be in the way and you have power over them. 
Now, in an ideal world, you don't do that because you under, if anything, being on the receiving end of abuse would make you more sensitive to abuse and make you more compassionate. Sadly, we don't live in an ideal world, and that's not the way most people respond to abuse. In so many cases, people on the receiving end of abuse then end up being abusers themselves. Now, clearly that's not true for everybody. There are plenty of exceptions to that rule. But it happens often enough that unfortunately one has to notice that that tends to, if not regularly work that way, at least work that way more often than one would like. And it definitely seems to be the case with what happened in the Japanese army. You know, psychologically, this level of ordinary violence made it easier for Japanese soldiers to unleash brutality on POWs and civilians. You know, if you do stuff like that to your own men, what are you willing to do to the enemies? And this is not the only way in which Japanese military culture contributed to shaping the people who become the butchers of the Batandat march. Their attitudes towards surrender were, how can I put it, let's safely say peculiar. Now, the Japanese military field code stated that soldiers should either suicidally fight to the death against overwhelming forces or simply kill themselves. But everything was better than being captured and bringing dishonor to themselves and their whole families. There was simply no room for honorable surrender. You know, this sort of explained why there were insanely low numbers of Japanese soldiers who were captured in battle because of this. For example, later in the war, after the Battle of Saipan in the summer of 1944, hundreds of Japanese soldiers had committed seppuku, the ritual disembowelment, rather than being captured. In the series about the 47 Ronin, I've discussed at length the almost cult-like status of ritual suicide in Japanese culture. So I won't be long here. You know, you can check out that series for that discussion. But let's just say if you build the whole idea around the notion that suicide is a much more honorable alternative to surrender, inevitably your soldiers are not going to look kindly toward enemy soldiers who willingly give up. The perception would be that these men are cowards who deserve no pity. Had they been real men, they would have died fighting. And so that may be why in German and Italian POW camps, the death rate for allied POWs was 4%. In Japanese camps, it was 27%. I mean, we are not even in the same universe here, right? From 4% to 27%, that tells you something. In 1944, the Japanese war ministry issued an order to commanders in POW camps telling that, if need be, all POWs were to be killed. It stated, it is the aim not to allow the escape of a single one to annihilate them all and not to leave any traces. So, yeah, the attitudes toward POWs were weird in very disturbing ways. I was 
trying to explain, because uh, my daughter often asks me about the stuff I'm researching and what I'm working on, so I was trying to explain to her the Japanese attitude toward um, prisoners of war and some of the terrible things that would happen to American and Filipino POWs, you know, some of the stuff that I haven't discussed yet, but we're getting there, and I'm sure you can foreshadow what's going on. Now, my daughter is 10 years old, and yes, probably I'm not going to get a Father of the Year award in discussing such stories with her. But then again, poor child, never had a chance. You know, recently I couldn't think of a bedtime story for her, so I told her what uh, Genghis Khan did to the Khwarizmian Empire. So yeah. I'm unfortunately being around me means that you don't get exactly Disney-fied stories. In any case, she looked at me after I told her this old tale and she was like, wow, just because I'm not a psycho who prefers disemboweling himself rather than surrendering and having a chance to see my family again, would you mind not, not setting me on fire? And, you know, she was referring to a story in which... Um, um, Japanese prison guard just flat out set on fire some of the POWs. In any case, this whole thing is to explain the state of mind prevailing among many Japanese soldiers. I mean, consider this. This was a message handed to Japanese troops um, when coming to the Philippines. The message read, when you encounter the enemy after landing, Think of yourself as the Avenger come at last face to face with his father's murderer. Here before you is the man whose death will lighten your heart of its burden of brooding anger. If you fail to destroy him utterly, you can never rest at peace. Which seems like a really angry version of Inigo Montoya's My name is Inigo Montoya, you kill my father, prepare to die. I mean, psychologically, you can see what they were trying to do, right? You're trying to, rather than you're going against these soldiers from another country who are probably some poor guy drafted into the army to fight a war that they may or may not understand what it's about. And so you probably actually have a lot in common with them in some way. To that person in front of you is directly responsible for your father's death. Whether this happened or not, and you know, in 99.9% .9 cases, that would not be the, the story. You're trying to create a fiction in order to create anger and hatred that would make it easier to kill people. And of course, you would also make it easier to unleash some serious atrocities on them. In some way, this is very hard to wrap one's mind around. Today, you would be hard-pressed to find a more polite society than the Japanese. If you drop your wallet on the street, the chances that you'll still find it two hours later are much greater in Japan than probably anywhere else in the world. And of course, Japanese DNA hasn't changed. You know, the events of World War II are less than 80 years removed. So when you look at the record of the Japanese army in World War II and notice that it's nothing short of horrific, you know, monstrous abuses against civilians, brutality and murder toward the POWs, sexual slavery, you know, the whole story is beyond terrible. 
And so the obvious question is, how can this be the same society that produces modern Japanese culture? I spent a good chunk of time on the phone with my friend Daryl Cooper from the Martyr Made podcast. And while we came up with some good conjectures, uh, neither one of us felt fully satisfied that we had a real answer. So I'll let you ponder on this and see if you can come up with your own theories in ways that neither Daryl or I were quite capable to hit the spot to our satisfaction. So, okay, we have a major organizational problem. Soldiers who, in addition to the stress of war, are filled with an insane level of pent-up anger from all the violence they were subjected to, and raised in a culture that despised POWs. Let's add another element to the mix. Upset with Lieutenant General Homma, his superior, the Imperial Army Chief of Staff, General Hajime Sugiyama, sent his trusted henchman, a lieutenant named Masanabu Tsuji, to observe what was happening. Now, Tsuji was, you know how you, the standard thing is that we say in history you want to try not to judge people from the past according to the standards of your society and all that good stuff? Very hard to do with Tsuji. He is just seem like, from all the sources, he seemed as awful as a human being as you can run into. Super racist. His nationalism wasn't just nationalism, it was just straight-up Japanese supremacy ideology. And 100% brutal. Big fan of the virulent racism spreading in some segments of Japanese society, which emphasized the superiority of the Japanese race over everyone else. Author Hampton Sides writes, Wherever he went, atrocities seemed to follow. He was said to be personally responsible for the death of more than 5,000 Chinese. In one occasion, it's even said that he may have ate the liver of a downed ally pilot to build a fighting spirit. Now, this may just be legend. Or it may be that, you know, bottle of Chianti and fava beans in Hannibal Lecter style, he actually did it. Either way, that gives you a vibe of the guy. Um, again, Sides writes, Tsuji managed to persuade a few of the field officers that the Philippine conflict was fundamentally a race war that required extreme measures and absolute ruthlessness of the sort that the weak-willed General Homma could not master. There's a report that in the, during the march he personally killed several POWs. And so in many ways, if you're going to f- look for a guy responsible for the Bataan that march, he's probably high on the list, much more than uh, General Homma. There's even some evidence that either he or some of the officers who idolized him may have played a role in trying to organize a complete massacre of the POWs during the march. A Japanese officer named uh, Colonel Yoshi Mai received a radio message ordering him to kill all the POWs he had in his hands. Now, he didn't believe that this order had come from Homa, so he actually checked and in fact, if I doubt that the order did not come from home, 
It was clear that some officers with a much harsher and merciless attitude than Hamas were trying to exploit the lack of supervision to push their own bloody agenda. Even though they didn't get the full-scale massacre they wanted, they did get their wish in being able to turn what was simply supposed to be a movement of POWs to their internment camp into a death march. From the start, American and Filipino POWs realized that any interaction with Japanese soldiers could uh, lead to a wide range of outcomes. On one side, they could see that quite a few soldiers had no ill intention. You know, it was clear that they were just exhausted and in a hurry, but they didn't have a particularly bad bone to pick. They were ordered to move the POWs as soon as possible, so the pressure was on. You know, most were very young, often teenagers. But there were plenty of cases where they behave uh, humanely. You know, take for example the odd case of a Japanese officer running up and hugging an American captain after recognizing him since they had been classmates at UCLA. Or consider the story of Edward Thomas, who was a lieutenant with the Signal Corps. He was, he was a big guy, about 6'4", had been a star on his local football team. During the war, he worked on telephone lines maintenance in the army, among other things. And around this time, before the surrender, he had gone off on his own and decided to surrender after his Filipino crew decided to leave to try to reunite with their families. So he was by himself when he surrendered, and he was immediately taken as a kind of a personal assistant to a Japanese officer who had studied at UCLA, loved living in the U.S., and was more than happy to have an American guy to chat in English with, and, you know, the little time that they spent together, he was nothing but nice to, uh, to Thomas, fed him well, and in one occasion there was um, some of the officers are having a dinner party, and they decide to liven up things by having some bouts of sumo wrestling, and so since Thomas is so big and strong, they ask him to participate. Now, of course, he doesn't know sumo wrestling, so of course he's going to lose. But, you know, his Japanese opponents pick him up and slam him down. But all the Japanese officers, they clap for him. They offer him drinks. He's, he's been treated super well. He was the only American, though, in a Japanese camp. So after a while, even though things were going so well, he figured he probably should be with other Americans. So the Japanese officer who had treated him so kindly said, sure, you know, if that's what you want, I'll bring you to a place where the other American POWs are. So it was in this way that Thomas joined a group of about 50 POWs. And this is where it became clear that A, he had probably made a mistake by not sticking close to the officer who had treated him fairly well. And B, not all Japanese officers shared the mellow disposition of his first captor. For example, because of alleged American atrocities during the fighting, the Japanese officer in charge of this group of POWs decided to execute 10 of them, just for the hell of it, including Thomas. 
they were given cigarettes and sake, and then they were ordered to dig their own graves. They all refused the blindfold, and you know the soldiers loaded their rifles, aim appointed, but then decided to just not shoot them. And the Japanese officer said, I was really going to shoot you, but then I decided on this joke. Ha ha ha. And this was actually the good outcome, because in plenty of cases there was nothing, there was no mock execution, there was nothing but really bloody stuff. Now, obviously this is highly disturbing stuff, of course, but by comparison with other incidents, it's just a warm-up. Sometimes when trucks full of Japanese troops drove by on the road along which the POWs march, some of the Japanese soldiers would smile at American troops. But just as often, other Japanese soldiers would hit them with sticks as they were passing by. You know, both things happened, both things were true. That's human nature in a nutshell. You know, one end you had some soldiers having compassion for young guys just like them going through the same crap, and and on the other instead you had this anger fueled by frustration and the desire to lash out against those you hold responsible for your own suffering. Some guards were compassionate, others would kill with a bayonet anybody who slowed down the march because of their weakness and poor health. Unfortunately, the longer the march continued, the more the ratio between semi-pleasant and murderously brutal turned progressively uglier. A bunch of the soldiers were stealing everything that wasn't nailed to a wall from the POWs. Anyone who resisted was beaten mercilessly, if they were lucky. Some American soldiers who couldn't take their rings off because of swelling had their fingers cut off by uh, Japanese soldiers. In one case, some of the Japanese found a lighter made in Japan, so they thought that it was taken from a Japanese soldier after killing him rather than being an import, so they lopped off the guy's arms with a sword. In other cases, they stabbed people with bayonets, and, you know, in a full-on display of sheer sadism, they would stab them in a way that was lethal, but not a quick death. Just because, right? Because if you're going to be a horrible human, why not go out all the way? Quick break in the narration to thank HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, for sponsoring this episode. HelloFresh delivers farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your door. Here are some of the reasons why I strongly recommend you give it a try. Everything you need to cook a wonderful dinner comes in one package, so you save time rather than looking for all the ingredients at a grocery store. It's just straight to your door with pre-portioned ingredients. It's fairly cheap, on average 25% cheaper than takeout and also often cheaper than what you can find in most grocery stores. Recipes are easy to follow, and we just had a firecracker meatballs with roasted green beans and jasmine rice, and that was epic. So go to hellofresh.com forward slash HOF16, again HOF16, and use the code HOF16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, hellofresh.com forward slash HOF16, and use the code HOF16. Along the march, Filipinos sympathizing with American troops 
showed up at every town and village that they passed through. You know, peasants lined up the streets flashing victory signs with their fingers and offering water. Women would shed tears seeing the suffering of the POWs and brought them fruit. These displays of support often came at a very heavy cost if they were witnessed by a murderous soldier ready to act on his worst instincts. In one case, there was a Filipino boy gave the victory sign with his fingers to the POWs passing by, and so a Japanese soldier, without saying a word, just walked up and stabbed him with a bayonet, and then promptly ran through the boy's mother when she tried to help him. In one case, a pregnant Filipina came with some fruit and gave it to, um, to some of the POWs. She was grabbed by a Japanese guard, dragged to the side of the road, and stuck in the belly with a bayonet that would uh, pull out the fetus out of her body, killing them both. And then there were more ordinary forms of deadly brutality. You know, most of the men had gone with no water for so long, so they were weakened and half crazy with thirst. Those who couldn't keep up due to sickness, thirst, wounds, and fatigue were usually killed. Falling and being unable to keep up could lead to a roadside execution. And these, which may have started as the aberrant behavior of a few dangerously psycho soldiers, quickly became the norm. Particularly, it was becoming obvious that the march could not be completed by its intended deadline. As a POW named Lester Tenney would say, if you fell down, you died. If you stopped walking, you died. In some rare cases, at least some POWs got their revenge. Take, for example, the story of Major Alvin Poelate. I'm taking a wild guess on how to pronounce the last name because I have no idea. He had been a pro boxer, and this helps in our story because in a stretch of road where there were a few stragglers, he and a friend just ran to drink some water just off the road. They were promptly followed and beaten by a guard, but after noticing that no one was watching them, they knocked him out and then killed him, threw his body upon the bamboo, picked up, you know, Paulette picked up his wounded friend, and they kept moving. You know, they were too far from the others for anyone to see, so they were able to get away with it. After the march, after rather the first leg of the march, the POWs reached Homas headquarters and they were fed at least some. Over a few days later, they were brought to a rail station and they were thrown in these overcrowded train cars. You know, the train wagons were a mess. They were, there were no windows. They, there were way too many people in too little space. The people were packed so tightly that even if you, as many people did, wanted to pass out and fall, you couldn't. Uh, you reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit in there. Plenty of these guys were having diarrhea, were throwing up, were shaking in the throes of malaria. So when several hours later, finally, they reached destination and the train wagons were open, 
quite a few of the men would never walk out. You know, the train ride in extreme heat being the last row. By the time the march was over, a few thousands among those who started the walk didn't make it. Some died from exhaustion, others were killed by the Japanese. Many, many more casualties among the Filipinos than the Americans. But significant either way. You know, it's hard to get exact numbers. Some estimates suggest uh, about 750 Americans and 5,000 Filipinos dead. In other cases, the estimate can go as high as uh, maybe 14,000, 15,000 Filipinos dead and 2,000 Americans. Realistically, nobody has exact numbers, but, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. They were brought to a place named Camp O'Donnell, uh, which used to be a training ground for the Filipino army. They were way, despite all the deaths, there were way too many POWs, so it was hopelessly overcrowded, you know, horrific situation from a sanitary point of view. Parasites everywhere, very little food. So not surprisingly, thousands of Americans and Filipinos would be buried there very, very high mortality rate. Again, a quote by that masterful writer with Hampton Sides. O'Donnell was less a prison than it was an incubatorium for disease, a study in what happens when thousands of starving, ill men are brought together in close proximity in the tropics. Antique disease that had long since been conquered by modern medicine rose out of the latrines for an encore performance. When it rained, you know, mass graves would flood and bodies would float to the top. In the meantime, on the other side of the bay, uh, Corregidor lasted longer than Bataan, but eventually was defeated too. And many of the survivors of Bataan ended up joining these new groups of POWs coming in once the Philippines were fully conquered. Okay then, so here we are in 1942 with the defeat of American troops in the Philippines and the terrible story of the Bataan Death March. Now, thanks to the magical powers of storytelling, we're going to fast forward more than two years to the end of 1944. By this point, plenty of those POWs have died too violence and diseases, and those strong enough to work were sent to slave camps in Taiwan, Manchuria, and Japan. By the time we pick up our story back up, it's December 14, 1944, and our focus is on a smaller POW camp on Palawan, the Puerto Princesa prison camp. Much had changed in the previous couple of years. Japan had gone from dominating and winning battles wherever its soldiers had their boots to being on the defensive and steadily losing ground to American expansion. American forces were reconquering all the lands they had lost until then, and by now they had their sights set on the Philippines. What had not changed, on the other hand, was the brutality with which Japanese troops treated their POWs. And at Puerto Princesa, things took a particularly horrific turn. Now, it was clear now to everyone that American troops would soon be retaking the Philippines one piece at a time. 
and in order to prevent the POWs from being rescued. The Japanese soldiers at Puerto Princesa decided to just wipe them out. You know, 150 American POWs were forced in trenches they had previously dug. They were covered in aviation fuel and set on fire. A few were able to escape, including a certain Eugene Nielsen, who was an army private first class with the 59th Coast Artillery. He was captured in May 1942 by the Japanese. He was, uh, by now, 28 years old. For two and a half years, he had basically worked as a slave while being a POW. When fire started spreading through the trench, and the Japanese began to drop grenades on them, Nielsen tried to escape. I quote from his words. Luckily, I was in the trench that was closest to the fence, so I jumped up and dove through the barbed wire. I fell over the cliff and somehow grabbed onto a small tree, which broke my fall and kept me from getting injured. There were Japanese soldiers posted down on the beach. I buried myself in a pile of garbage and coconut husks. I kept working my way under until I got fairly well covered up. Lying there, I could feel the little worms and bugs eating holes in the rubbish. And then I felt them eating holes into the skin of my back. All in all, about 20 other Americans had managed to escape, but Japanese soldiers were now searching for them, and anyone they saw was shot or killed with a bayonet. Well, those were the lucky ones. The unlucky ones said it worse. One was surrounded by six soldiers. Upon seeing them carrying gasoline, he begged to be shot, but they set him on fire instead. The Japanese spotted part of Nielsen's body, but he was so immobile that they thought he was already dead and had been buried, so by some miraculous stroke of luck, they left. Later, when he realized that he was getting surrounded on land, he decided to jump in the water just as Japanese soldiers began shooting at him. So he took two bullets for his trouble. Lucky for him, neither one was lethal. After nine hours of swimming, now, I don't know what's the longest you've ever swam, but nine hours is a long time to be in the water swimming. After nine hours of swimming, he made it to an area where there were no Japanese soldiers. He was actually found by a Filipino guerrilla fighter who saved him. And so by the time some of those who escaped were found and killed by the Japanese, 11 of them had managed to flee. This Filipino guerrilla fighter took them to a different island and dropped them in the care of the U.S. Army. This was just a few weeks after this that American forces began the invasion of the island of Luzon, where Manila is. And it's at this point that our tale truly begins. You know, sorry for the long introduction because, well, I feel it was needed in order to put things in perspective and give you a context so that the stuff that's about to follow makes some sense. But this is where things 
take a whole different turn. A guy named Robert Laffam enters our story. Um, he was an American who had been working with Filipino guerrilla for almost three years by then. He had gone into hiding when Batan had fallen, and he had recruited plenty of Filipinos to organize a large guerrilla network. At this particular point, he enters our tale when he contacts Colonel Orton White to tell him that near the city of Cabanatuan, by the way, apologies for my terrible pronunciation. Well, I should apologize in multiple languages since I screwed up names in English, by now in Tagalog, Spanish, you name it, you know. That's, I almost shouldn't even apologize anymore since I do it with everything, but again. Um, Marlon Mercado, good Filipino friend of mine, tried to help me with the pronunciation. I'm sorry, Marlon. This is the best I can do. In any case, uh, the message was that close to this city, there was a prison camp with 500 American soldiers. Most of them were survivors from uh, the Bataan that march who had been moved here from Camp O'Donnell to this new camp. For the previous two years, life had not been a barrel of monkeys for these guys. Those who didn't die would try to spend their time playing chess, putting on plays, listening to lecture by some of their better-educated men in the camp, which doesn't sound so bad, except when you consider that they also had to do slave work for the Japanese while surviving on starvation rations and being plagued with every possible disease one could catch in a tropical climate. The guards in the camp were usually not exactly the cream of the crop of the Japanese army. Uh, the good soldiers were off fighting elsewhere. The guards were typically not the smartest ones out there, um, one thing that they did was use collective punishment. You know, if one person broke a rule, all the people in his units would be punished. So what they had done was to divide prisoners in units of 10. And for example, if anyone tried to escape or even successfully escape, the other nine would be executed. This was uh, to try to make sure that people would uh, try to stop their friends escaping. Some of the doctors in the camp, you know, the American doctors in the camp, had to help their fellow prisoners, but with basically no medicine, so improvising a whole lot, any strategy to make stuff work. Malnutrition and diseases caused the loss of hair, teeth, and a bunch of other terrible things, so these guys look like skeletons pretty much. Of course, most of the time, the relationship between them and the guards was just awful. You know, occasionally, like it always happened, occasionally there were some friendly interactions. For example, there's a story of a guard named Hirota, uh, some 18-year-old Japanese kid who befriended a blind POW named uh, Bert Bank. So, you know, occasionally nice things could happen, but they were by far the exception to the rule. Incidentally, not all the POWs there were Americans. There were Norwegians, Canadians, Dutch, and British. Mostly lots of military personnel, but occasionally even some civilians. 
Uh, among the Americans, among the ethnic minority, there were a whole lot of Native Americans here. There were Apache, Navajo, Hopi, and Pueblo, and Batan. Particularly because many of them were part of the New Mexico National Guard who had been sent to this particular area. At one point there had been possibly as many as 8,000 prisoners there. Some estimates suggest even more. But more recently, all those in semi-decent shape have been sent to work as coal miners in Japan. Since the invasion of the Philippines began, the Japanese started moving as many of the POWs to Japan as possible, and the ones left behind were just those who were too sick to move. The healthier ones were placed on ships, and not knowing that they were in those particular vessels, American planes actually attacked them, inflicting quite a few casualties. For example, in September 1944, the Americans sank a Japanese ship, not knowing that almost 700 American POWs from the camp were in uh, this particular target. As usual, by the way, I almost shouldn't even have to say it, but conditions during the move were atrocious for the POWs, you know. Typical thing of too many people stuffed in too little a space with next to no food or water. So many of them either dying because of exhaustion or because getting bombed by their own country's planes who don't know that they are there or by being trampled by others who are panicking in the confines where they are at. Uh, all in all, it's estimated that about 1,600 of prisoners from... Uh, the Cabanatuan camp were on these ships. To give you an idea just how sick or weakened the one left behind were, just a few weeks prior to this dialogue I reported of uh, the guerrilla leader telling the army we need to do something about these guys, the Japanese guards had left the camp unguarded completely. And the POWs had essentially been left to themselves for a few days. As they saw evidence of uh, Americans returning to the Philippines, the prisoners understood that there was a serious chance that they would be massacred. You know, they were of no use to the Japanese. And why would the Japanese leave them alive if we could return to fighting or at least testify to their atrocities? So when on January 6, 1945, the Japanese soldiers had left the camp, their commander before leaving told them, look, in two days we're going to be leaving, but you have to stay here or we are going to find you and kill you. And two days later, true enough, the Japanese forces left. So the prisoners are unguarded. They could just walk out the gate if they want to. But they don't for multiple reasons. One, because there are plenty of Japanese troops moving up and down the road, so it's probably not that safe to live since they may be shot on sight. And more importantly, they're just too weak to make an escape through the jungle. It's like, you walk out of the camp and then what? You know, try to make it to American lines 30, 40, 50 miles away, on foot, through lands you don't know, when you can barely stand. So, against all odds, these unguarded prisoners don't walk out of their own prison because they can't. And again, this tells you how sick they were. 
POW named Ralph Rodriguez said, if we got out, where were we going to go? There were tanks, there was traffic on the road, thousands of Japanese troops all around us. But at least for the time being, they were able to go into the corner of the camp that had been inhabited by Japanese troops. And there they found plenty of food that had been left by the Japanese. So the POWs raided the supplies there. They also found mattresses, which sounded like a luxury because nobody had slept in a mattress in forever. But they quickly discarded them because they were by now so used to sleeping on hard surfaces that they could no longer sleep on soft mattresses. Eventually, a new group of Japanese soldiers arrived in the camp, and they were prisoners again. Uh, but at least in the meantime, the POWs put on some weight. To give you an idea of how bad this was, you know, there was a guy who was... Um, I read a story about a guy who weighed... His normal walking weight was about 150 pounds, and he had dropped to 90 pounds during this time of uh, captivity. 90 pounds on an adult man who's used to weighing 150. It's getting real close to death by starvation. And just with eating food for a few days um, after the Japanese guards had left, he made it back to 120, which is still ridiculously low, but, you know, 30 pound gain in a few days, that tells you how starved the man was. But again, you know, now the guards are back, or rather a new set of guards are back, and the POWs, even if they could think of making an escape, they can't. Lapham, could be Lapham, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, the American guerrilla leader I mentioned a few minutes ago. He had planned to try to rescue the POWs, but the odds had never really looked too good. However, now the urgency was on, because the arrival of the Americans meant that the Japanese would likely retreat, which could mean that for all the POWs. Lapham said, The plight of the prisoners at Cabanatuan had been on my mind for many months. I found it hard to think clearly when I was so emotionally committed to their rescue. We feared that once the Japanese thought the invasion was imminent, they would kill all the prisoners. So it's very likely that there would be a repeat of the Puerto Princesa massacre that I discussed a few minutes ago. You know, Lafam was aware of this and he did not want that to happen to the 500 guys uh, at this camp. General Walter Kruger, upon hearing this, agreed with White that attempting to rescue the POWs was in order. For these reasons, there was a need for complete secrecy, because if the Japanese suspected anything, they would just probably massacre the POWs. So it was a very, very delicate operation. Then again, everything in this war was a very delicate operation. Someone who had dared to help the POWs had recently found that out. I'll make it brief, but it's a wild story. It's a minor tangent, not a big one, because it's somewhat related, but in Manila there was a lady known by the code name of High Pockets who was the host of a nightclub called uh, Club Tsubaki, that mainly catered to Japanese officers. 
She went by the name of Dorothy Clara Fuentes. Her nightclub wasn't exactly a strip club, but somewhat close to it. Most of the acts were very sexual, featuring uh, some dancing by semi-naked ladies. It had a live orchestra, also had live singing. Dorothy Clara Fuentes herself was a singer. You know, a few years back, while on tour in the Philippines, she had married a Filipino man there. She later divorced and had returned to the Philippines on tour in 1941 to make it as a singer. It was there that she met her second husband, who was an American soldier named John Phillips. Phillips, however, was shortly thereafter captured by the Japanese, and she lost contact with him after he surrendered. She would later find out that her husband had died shortly after the Bataan death march from illness and poor nutrition. So as a result of that, she decided to just uh, jump into the resistance movement against the Japanese. So what she did is that she and their ladies would liquor up the Japanese officers who would uh, regularly patron the establishment, and she chat with them, trying to find out when they would depart, uh, on which boat, and for what destination. They would then pass the notes to the American guerrillas in the hills of Bataan, who in turn would then pass the news to MacArthur's headquarters in Australia. Fuentes' real name was actually Claire Phillips. She was 100% American, even though she posed like she was half Filipina and half Italian. And, um, you know, after she decided to join the resistance, she would spend days just sunbathing in order to look a little darker so that she could pass for the half Filipina, half Italian that she was pretending to be, rather than being American. All of her ladies were resistance activists. And it may seem strange to think of dancing semi-naked ladies as uh, resistance fighters, but they were. They took advantage of uh, um, the Japanese offers to teach the language to Filipinos by learning so that they could pick up more information from their marks. They all started because they wanted to be better at their job. And by their job, I don't just mean the dancing for tips, I mean getting information for the resistance. Phillips herself would use some of her own money to buy food and medicine, particularly anti-malaria medication, so that all this stuff could be smuggled into the Cabana Tuan camp. It was in this way that she saved a whole lot of lives. Of course, she was taking a huge risk. You know, if she was too obvious that she was fishing for information, she would get arrested along with her ladies and they would be tortured as spies. If they weren't assertive enough, then they would have no info to report. So talk about a delicate balancing act. Some of the information that she got regarding the movements of Japanese ships led to those very Japanese ships being sunk. And this was something that gave her a bit of a hard time. In one occasion, she ran into this very pleasant and polite Japanese captain 
who kept talking about how much he missed his family and how he was looking forward to seeing them again at the end of the war and all this stuff. But as bad as she felt about sending him to his death, Phillips passed the info of his ship's movements to the MacArthur's guys, and in turn they had the ship sunk. On one particular occasion, a Filipino boy arrived with a letter from some unknown guerrilla captain requesting help. And Phillips felt that, like, something didn't seem right. And so she made a big deal that she was an Italian and she wanted nothing to do with helping the Americans and, you know, putting on a big show. So after dismissing the boy, she sent one of her men to follow the boy. And they saw him talking to the military police. So it was clear that they were investigating the club. And eventually her luck ran out. On May 23rd, 1944, she was arrested as a spy because one of her messages had been intercepted. Being arrested as a spy meant almost inevitably you would be tortured. So she got, after being arrested, she got in you know, major beatings and she was subjected to some form of waterboarding. Eventually, after a long stay in prison, she was freed from a prison outside of Manila on February 10, 1945. She had been scheduled to be executed and had been fairly close to starving to death, but she had uh, managed to cheat death this time around. Eventually, she would receive the Medal of Freedom from the American Senate, despite that the fact that there are some doubts regarding the veracity of her accounts. You know, it seems like, from what I was able to gather by studying the story, it seems to me like there's a lot of truth to it, but that she also embellished their stories quite a bit. So, you know, both aspects are real. She both probably made up some stuff to make her story look more amazing, but there is also quite a bit of truth to it. Um, figuring out the exact balance is not the easiest thing, but that seems to be the case. In any case, back to the POW dilemma. How can you rescue them without triggering the very thing you're trying to avoid, which is the Japanese troops killing all of them? After going back and forth, the American military decided to give the job to Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci who was the commanding officer of the 6th Ranger Battalion. Much is a very interesting character, to say the least. As the name may imply, he was Italian-American. He had trained his unit, which was modeled on the British commandos for the previous year in New Guinea. Originally, the unit had focused on using mules to carry... Uh, cannons. But in the middle of World War II, people decided that mules were a primitive way to wage war, so the unit had to be reinvented. So what happened was that MacArthur spoke with Lieutenant General Walter Kruger, uh, the leader of the 6th Army, and voiced this desire for some kind of a unit that could operate almost guerrilla style behind enemy lines. Kruger in turn passed the assignment to Colonel Frederick Bradshaw, who created what would become known as the Alamo Scouts. 
The scouts perform flawlessly in several POW rescue operations in New Guinea, but on a much smaller scale than what was to come in the Philippines, in the story that we are dealing with. In any case, the success of the scouts made MacArthur want to create a battalion designed specifically for hit-and-run behind enemy lines operations, something similar yet bigger to the Alamo scouts. So this led the creation of a unit that would become known as the Rangers. Uh, and Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci was the man sent to command this unit, which had not really seen action yet when, by the time he took over in New Guinea. The unit will be made of about 570 men, only small weapons, meaning no artillery, no machine guns. You know, they would carry bazookas, but that was about it. And they were divided up into units of 65 men. Mucci, as I mentioned, was a peculiar kind of guy. He was 33 years old at this time. All the pictures I've seen of him, they were really interesting to me because he looked very similar to my paternal grandfather, Stelio. The man loved Mucci because he did everything he asked them to do. You know, he, he was super confident, had great charisma, and that made everybody want to fight for him. You know, he was some kind of a fitness fanatic who marched alongside with the man. He had a very theatrical personality and, you know, this passion for fitness meant he loved boxing, basketball, swimming, anything where he would have a chance to sweat, he was down for. When they started training in New Guinea, many of the rangers initially didn't like him because they felt that he pushed them too hard. But they grew to appreciate the fact that he applied to himself the same standards that he asked of them. You know, he would be along with the man doing everything he asked them to do, he would do himself. They had plenty of training in disarming sentinels, night warfare tactics, survival in the jungle. You know, in some instance, he... He himself taught disarming techniques of fighting against a guy who has a knife when you don't, um, amphibious maneuvers, jungle survival skill, marksmanship, running, swimming, you name it. To the point that a ranger at one point said, physical endurance, that was his thing, taking to the absolute limit of physical ability, which in some way captured very much the kind of training that they did. Many of his men had grown frustrated because they had all this amazing training, but they had no missions for quite a while. In late October 1944, the Rangers were used in the first operation to reconquer some of the very first islands of the Philippines. You know, they took some casualties, but they successfully eliminated some Japanese units. So here we are on January 27th, 1945, with Mochi meeting with White and Lapham to discuss uh, the mission. Mochi himself picked as the man to lead the operation to be Robert Prince, who was the C Company commander. The mission was as 
difficult as it could get. You know, the plan was for the Alamo scouts to go ahead and find some information regarding the camp. And then uh, over about a hundred of the rangers would march 30 miles behind enemy lines to get there. They would then kill all the Japanese guards and make it back with all the POWs. Author William Brewer wrote, Never in history had the United States Army been called on to rescue such a large number of POWs from so deep in enemy territory. Mochi made no mystery that the risks of this mission were enormous. So he asked all the married men to step aside, you know, out of the his whole battalion, he would only have to select like maybe 20% of them or something. And he said, so married men out, I don't want any of them because the risks are too high. If you're not 100% sure about this, I don't want you. I, he, he stated, I only want men who feel lucky. And to no one's surprise, considering how popular Mucci was, every single one of his men volunteered. By 4.30 a.m. on January 28, 1945, the rangers woke up and they were getting ready. Quite a few of them had not seen combat yet. Many were scared, but they were also driven by the goal of freeing the POWs. You know, there have been some people who felt that the risk of the mission outweighed the rewards of rescuing a bunch of guys who realistically could no longer contribute to the war effort. But none of the rangers felt that way. All in all, there were 121 of them that went on this mission. Kabanatuan was the provincial capital. The city was only four miles away from the POW camp. There were several thousand Japanese troops in the city. And what made the mission tricky is that going there and freeing the POWs was the easy part by comparison. The hard part would be retreating when they would have a whole bunch of sick people who could barely walk along with them. Now, this idea of having special forces was somewhat of a new thing in the American military during World War II. The only thing that the rangers would have going for them was the element of surprise. But of course, this could be lost at any moment. Now, in all fairness, they weren't alone in this. They had quite a few Filipino guerrilla fighters coming in as guides for them. Uh, quoting from uh, the book Go Soldiers. Now, as the men advance across the plains of Luzon, all those months of intensive training under Mochi began to make more sense. A ranger named Alvi Robbins said, we were in the best shape of our lives, and in this mission we understood why he had driven us so hard. None of them would be allowed to carry a metal helmet because they were afraid that the reflection from the sun and the noise from the helmet would give them away. Uh, most of them had some um, either M1 Garand, they had long-range rifles like Browning automatic rifle. Others had short-range weapons like the Thompson submachine gun. And a few of them carried bazookas. Today's episode is sponsored by Hillsdale College. 
Hillsdale College offers some free online courses on a whole variety of topics, from history to economics, from literature to the US Constitution. The college has been in business since 1844, and now they have taken some of the core classes they teach on campus and made them available for free online for anyone who wants to take them. I don't know about you guys, but free is a magic word I like a lot. Over 3 million people have taken a Hillside College online course. There are 39 free courses to choose from. They are easy to follow, and they are self-paced, so you can start whenever you want. Go right now to hillsdale.edu forward slash history on fire to enroll. There's no cost, and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu forward slash history on fire to register. Once more, that's hillside.edu forward slash history on fire. In a village nearby, they met with a Filipino guerrilla leader named Eduardo Hoson, who was in charge of guiding them for the next leg of the trip. It's easy to say that without the help of his men, the whole raid would have probably never even been attempted. Um, Hoson and this man were the ones who knew the land. If anyone could get the rangers to destination undetected, it was them. And these guys were as tough as tough could be. You know, the life of guerrilla fighters was super dangerous. Not only they could be killed at any moment, but because of the Japanese emphasis on collective punishment, their entire village could be wiped out if the Japanese could identify where they came from. So by now we have about 121 rangers and roughly around 18 guerrilla fighters. At one point during the first night, they had to cross a major highway with lots of Japanese traffic. Some managed to get through during the break in the traffic, but some had to go extremely close to a Japanese tank and pass in a ravine that was running under the road. They did this whole thing in complete silence, and they got so close to the tank that they could hear the dialogue of the Japanese soldiers inside of it. They were that close. And in that whole first day, they only managed to go about 12 miles. On January 29, 1945, the Filipino guerrilla fighters were, while they were as tough as tough could be, they were a little spooked to be in the forest in the middle of the night, since some of their folk beliefs were, you know, they very much believe in the idea of demons that were haunting the countryside at night. So being in the middle of the forest in pitch black nights did not contribute to making them uneasy. So that night at 2 a.m. in an open field, they all, rangers and Filipino guerrillas alike, they all got spooked by some noises. They couldn't figure out what it was. They heard a thud, thud, thud. And eventually what they saw was that there were birds they were falling dead out of the sky for absolutely no apparent reason. Now, they would never figure out why they had died in mass numbers mid-flight. You know, there are all sorts of theories to explain it, but no solid explanation to prove it for sure. Either way, nobody took this as a good omen. You know, and it certainly didn't do anything to ease 
the Filipino worry about demons. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, you're running around in the forest in the middle of the night. You already may have these ideas regarding supernatural beings haunting the forest, and, and suddenly you see a bunch of birds that just for no reason fall dead out of the sky. I can see how that would make you less than thrilled to go on. And yeah, they were tough, so on they did go. By dawn, they reach a small village, just five miles away from the POW camp. The villagers there offer them a bunch of food, including a Filipino classic, the balut, which is, if you're not familiar with the balut, it's a fertilized egg embryo of a duck, usually developed between 16 to 20 days. So basically you're looking at a duck fetus with bones soft enough to chew on. It's a classic Filipino thing. If you haven't grown up with it, it's definitely an odd experience. You know, where I grew up in Italy, we didn't do anything of that sort, but we, it was normal to grow up uh, eating raw eggs, which is something that today in US, if I tell anybody, most people look at me really weird. I would feel a little weird about it now knowing what I know about uh, the kind of illnesses that can come from uh, uncooked eggs. But back then it seemed normal. In any case, uh, the balut takes it to a whole other level and it's it seems scary enough to those that were people who were unused to it. To the point that it has become, uh, in modern days, it was used as a challenge on fear factor and I've sometimes seen, uh, I've survived eating balut t-shirts by people who dare to try it for the first time. In any case, enough on that sidetrack. This particular village had recently been attacked by the Japanese for being a guerrilla hotspot. Quite a few people had been killed, and so the villagers were itching for revenge, so they were more than happy to give the rangers a safe haven. The rangers had gone hard, you know, they had marched about 25 miles in 24 hours with zero sleep, and even to everyone wanted to sleep, they knew that they were just a few hours away from battle, so it was very hard to relax enough to drift into a dream state. The pressure was extra heavy on Captain Robert Prince, since, as I mentioned, Mucci had picked him to formulate the plan and lead the attack. Yes, Mucci had trained the rangers and taken them within striking distance, but at this point it was Prince's turn to take over and direct the attack. So the pressure was on. You know, if he messed up the plan, all 500 plus of the POWs would die, and quite possibly most, if not all the rangers, plus the scouts, plus the guerrilla fighter. So that's a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure. Prince was about 25 years old. He, he had grown up in Seattle around many Japanese Americans, so he had no racial animosity toward the Japanese. But, you know, he still had a job to do. Mochi liked him and trusted him a lot. The same ranger, Alvi Robbins, I quoted a bit ago, also had this to say. Mochi was good at sizing up an individual, and he saw in Captain Prince something he didn't see in others. At first we didn't see what it was. 
when you have an officer as young as Prince was, you have a tendency to brush him off, especially when you are in a group of rough and tough men like we were. Prince's personality sunk in gradually. He carried himself in such a way that you had to respect him. Uh, what was it about him that made him respected? For one, he was very calm, collected, didn't react emotionally to pretty much anything. And in this case, his stoicism was coming in handy, since in addition to the emotional pressure, Prince had been suffering in silence at every step of the march since his feet were wrecked with terrible blisters. But for now, there was nothing to do but wait. In order to put the final touches to the plan, Prince needed a report from the Alamo scouts. Um, so off they went, operating behind enemy lines. Well, by this point, everybody was behind enemy lines, so it didn't matter, but some of the scouts had gone ahead of the rangers to gain information about the camp, and two of them returned to give Mucci and Prince some of the news. Lesser men than Mucci and Prince would have been crushed by the news because they really weren't good. To start with, the information they, the scouts brought back was much too incomplete. There was no exact intelligence on the numbers of Japanese soldiers in the camp and on a bunch of other factors that were essential to know in order to properly plan the attack. The scouts thought that there may be about 70 regular guards in the camp, plus several Japanese troops visiting, so they guessed about 100. But realistically, they weren't sure. They were just guessing a number here. So also the stuff that they were sure about was far from encouraging. Close to the camp, the land was very flat and there was little vegetation to hide the rangers. So they would be in plain sight for hundreds of yards close to the gates. On top of it, there was non-stop traffic of troops around the camp. In uh, Kabanatuan city, just four miles away from the camp, there were 7,000 Japanese soldiers stationed there. And on top of it all, you had at least 200 elite Imperial Army troops camping just a mile from the POW camp. So none of these contributed to paint a happy scenario, or one in which the rangers could legitimately hope for a successful outcome. Mochi being Mochi, he simply did not take no for an answer. And so he ordered the Alamo scouts to go out again to try to get more information. He wanted to know exactly how many Japanese soldiers were there, which buildings held the tanks, if any, the exact distance from the front gate to the tanks, how long the entire camp was, and a bunch of other info. So two of the scouts, dressed as Filipino peasants in order to approach a hut that was about 300 yards from the camp with perfect views, off they went. This was risky since they would be walking in full view of the Japanese guards, and if the Japanese guards got suspicious and they sent someone to check on these unusually tall peasants, well, at least one of them was, they would be in a world of trouble. But they got lucky. Nobody came looking for them. 
So they made their way back by 2.30 p.m. with more information about the layout inside the camp. They said there were three guard towers, about 12 feet tall, and, you know, a bunch of other info. Prince would later say, Our forward scouts did a magnificent job. They plotted the exact location of the watchtowers and found out how many jobs were in each one and the type of weapons they had which buildings had the tanks, where two pillboxes were located, which barracks the transient Japanese troops were in, and which were the guards' quarters. They also told us that there were 225 to 250 enemy soldiers in the enclosure. So, just as everyone was gearing up for the night's action, a Filipino guerrilla leader, named uh, Juan Pajota, visited, promising 90 fighting men, plus many more who would not fight but would help move the POWs after the raid. However, Pajota had something else to say besides offering help, something that was not going to make Mochi very happy. In no uncertain terms, Pajota told the rangers that carrying out the raid on that particular night would be suicide, and just begged them not to do it. He said that there were 200 Japanese soldiers just a mile away, and that those 200 had been reinforced by 800 more just recently. And inside the camp, there weren't just 100 Japanese, but there were 300 of them. And if that wasn't bad enough, they expected plenty of Japanese soldiers on the road by the camp that very night. So what he suggested to do was to wait 24 hours until, at the very least, the troop movement on the road would have died out. So upon finding out that Pahota was right, and indeed there would be thousands of Japanese troops on the road moving close to the camp, Mochi grumpily agreed to postpone the raid. You know, not that postponing wouldn't be risking itself, after all, with each passing hour, the odds that the Japanese would massacre the POWs increased. And never mind the fact that hiding such a large force in enemy territory for 24 more hours dramatically increased the risk of being discovered. But yet, charging on a night in which the road would be covered with hundreds if not thousands of Japanese troops, was indeed suicide, and, and Mochi understood it. Pahota wasn't done, though. He had some questions for the Americans. What were they going to do with the POWs? Okay, let's say you are successful and you free them, then what? How do you get men who can barely stand to cover the 30 miles back to American lines? Pahota suggested using cards pulled by water buffalo. Water buffaloes were slow, sure, but they were better than nothing. And so, yet again, Mucci ended up accepting the guerrilla leader's suggestion. But Mucci chose not to sit still, and so what he did was at very least move this man to Plateros, who was a village only two miles from the target. The village was home to barely 300 people, but this didn't prevent them from giving the rangers and the guerrilla a royal welcome. All of them there hated the Japanese, 
because despite all the rhetoric about freeing Asia from Western imperialism, the Japanese had regularly abused people wherever they conquered. Imperial pimps had drafted pretty Filipino girls to serve as comfort women in bordellos in New Guinea, Solomon Islands and a bunch of other places. You know, the story of the sexual slavery imposed by the Japanese army is one in a long string of horrible things committed by the Japanese military in World War II. So as soon as the rangers and the guerrilla arrived, they were greeted by a group of young women who would uh, put a garland of flowers around their necks and giving them kisses. They also sang for them their version of uh, God Bless America. Once that was done, a full-on feast with plenty of food began. The villagers went all out, sparing no expenses to share with them whatever food they had. You know, in some way it was weird to have a feast so close to the enemy. You know, more sober-minded people would have wanted to play it safe in a situation where the lives of so many people were on the line. And clearly a party would not be many people's top priority in the circumstances, or he would have see, be seen as at least not advisable. But the way the Filipino villagers saw it, and the rangers came to share their opinion, if you're about to die, you might as well have a good time first. So the mayor of Cabanatuan city came with whiskey to greet them, now, Muchi appreciated this, but he was also a little suspicious that, you know, maybe what if this guy is a spy? So he apologized to him, but he said he would have to detain him until the raid would be over. So by the time night came, the rangers went off to sleep at the homes or in the barns of the Filipino hosts, with their boots on, just in case of emergency. After a night when few people were able to close their eyes, the morning of January 30th arrived. The plan formulated by Prince was for 200 guerrilla fighters under Pajota to destroy a nearby bridge with explosives and hold the position against the 1,000 imperial soldiers camping a mile away. The other guerrilla leader, Eduardo Hoson, along with his men, would set up a roadblock toward Cabanatuan city against the 8,000 soldiers stationed there. Now, clearly these guys would seriously need to pray that the Japanese forces in the city wouldn't realize what was happening a few miles from them, because no one had any illusion that Hoson and his men could last long against 8,000 soldiers. So in an effort to maximize their chances, they would cut the telephone wires around the POW camp to prevent any call for help going out from the camp to the city. So both groups, you know, both of the guerrilla groups would guard against reinforcement while the rangers themselves would attack the camp. The plan was for some of the rangers to go to the back of the camp and launch the attack at 7.30 p.m. The noise from the backside of the camp when the attack would start would give Prince and the others in the front the signals to attack the front gate. The bazooka team would walk in to destroy the tanks believed to be parked in a metal shed. 
and once Prince was sure that all the POWs were saved, he would fire a red flare so that all would retreat. As Prince said, we wanted all hell to break loose, but to break loose precisely on our terms. The main fear was of being spotted, as they were approaching the camp on flatland. Pahota asked for the Americans to see if they could fly some planes overhead so that the guards would be looking at the sky rather than on the ground. So Mucci made the call to get some air support, but he wasn't exactly holding his breath that he would get it, and even if he did, that the odds of synchronizing these at precisely the right time weren't great. Right before heading out, Mucci had a discussion with medic captain Jimmy Fisher, who insisted on participating in the raid and not just simply hand back in this makeshift hospital at Plateros. With some reluctance, Mucci agreed to have him along. You know, the argument basically was Mucci saying, look, you're too precious, we can't take chances with you getting killed out there when you're the only guy who can perform surgeries. Um, Fisher saying, well, if there is the need to perform some surgery, I may have to do it right there and there in the field. I cannot be just a couple of miles out. I need to be there in case to help out. So they went back and forth a little until eventually Fisher convinced Mochi. On the way toward the camp, the rangers had to ford the river. There were difficult currents and considerable death, but again the guerrilla fighters came in handy, directing them to a place where both factors weren't as bad. Muchi was concerned that if enough Japanese soldiers would attack the guerrilla positions, the Filipinos would fold and run. Not because they were cowards, but just they weren't a regular army and they were more suited for hit-and-run tactics than for a battle with... Uh, against a numerically superior force. Pahota, however, promised Mochi that the only way the Japanese would get through them would be by killing them all. Now, a promise, however sincere, is not a guarantee. As um, that brilliant philosopher who's Mike Tyson once put it, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Pahota may have meant it, but it's one thing to make a promise before battle, and it's a whole different story to maintain it when 1,000 Japanese soldiers charge screaming in your direction. Or maybe Pahota was truly one of those guys who would keep his word no matter what, even if it costed him his life. There was really only one way to find out. So in the late afternoon, all of them arrived within sight of the camp. In some way, there was something archetypal about the whole thing, like so many times in history, stretching all the way back to prehistoric warfare. What we have here is a group of raiders sizing up a defensive position that they intend to attack. You know, throughout human history, so many times this scene has played out with forts, fortified villages, towns finding themselves attack by a group of raiders. Now, in this case, siege would not be an option because there were POWs inside, so the, the rangers would have to win quickly before the Japanese troops inside could kill the man that the rangers had come to rescue. So 30 men from F Company would go around the camp and attack from the back. 
they were not allowed to use radios or walkie-talkies for fear of noise, so there was no way to know when they would be in position, since it would be 800 yards on the other side from the front gate. The plan was for F Company to open fire first, and they would give the signal to everyone else to attack. So 30 men from F Company were led by Lieutenant John Murphy. Um, from less than a mile from the front gate, Prince ordered everyone to crawl forward. It was just too dangerous to walk upright, since the terrain had become flat and the vegetation was scarce. At one point during their crawling forward, they heard what sounded like an alarm coming from the camp. And so everybody freaked out because they were afraid of having been spotted. So all the rangers readied their weapons, but Prince looked into the camp, didn't see any of the soldiers agitated, so he figured, no, they hadn't been spotted. It must have been something else. And indeed it was something else. It would, they would later find out that it was the POWs ringing a watch bell that they used to keep time, something that they used to do all the time. The rangers couldn't believe that they hadn't been spotted because they felt that multiple times they had been much too visible. Shortly before the attack, an American plane arrived almost on cue flying over the camp and engaged in a series of maneuvers that distracted the Japanese guards. Mucci had requested exactly this, but A, he had never dared to hope it would happen in time, B, it actually did happen with perfect timing and was successful in distracting the guards. So Murphy's men were also saved by the plane because they had been very close to being discovered. And on their way to their destination, they had to literally crawl over the graves of dead POWs to get to the backside of the camp. Pahota and his men also got in position and placed uh, landmines on the road and the time bomb under the bridge. The bomb was set to detonate at 7.45 p.m. And, uh, one mile away, Hoson and his men were facing the opposite direction, toward the city, praying that the seven or 8,000 soldiers stationed there wouldn't hear what was going on. Once the sun went down, it became pitch black. It was really, really dark. So by the time Murphy and his men got in position at the back of the camp, it was 7.40 p.m., about 10 minutes past the allotted time for starting the thing. So many of the rangers in the front were tense. They were like, what's going on back there? But even more tense was Murphy himself, since he had to fire the first shot against the Japanese that would signal the whole raid to begin. Quoting again from the masterful book that is Ghost Soldiers. Along the full length of the fence, all the way around to the front, where Prince and his men were waiting what must have been agonizing anticipation, Murph knew that every ranger ear was tuned to receive and instantly react to a single sound. He braced himself for the thunderous ferocity of a hundred American weapons replying at once to his cue. It was a dazzling, unnerving feeling to hold so much latent power in the tip of a digit. He brought his M1 rifle to his shoulder and switched off the safety, 
he drew a deep breath and settled his sights on a Japanese soldier inside the barracks, resting his index finger on the cool crescent of metal. You know, Princess Man had been waiting just 30 feet from the closest Japanese soldier without moving a muscle. As Roy Peters would say, they were just 30 feet away. We sat in the dark, listening to them talk and talk, wondering which one of them would be the first to die. The sound of Murphy's gunfire pierced the night, and immediately the rangers opened up and within seconds they killed everyone in the towers and the pillboxes. It was complete surprise and even more complete thanks to the overwhelming firepower that they were unleashing. A ranger named Teddy Richardson ran up to try to open the padlock at the gate and was shot at by a Japanese soldier. Richardson in turn gunned him down and then used his gun to break the padlock. So with that, the gates were open and all the rangers ran inside. They started shooting at the officer quarters. The very thin walls didn't protect anybody there, so the bullets pierced right through, killing the occupants. The bazooka team made for the sheds where the tanks were thought to be, but they ran into a truck packed with Japanese soldiers trying to flee. So they shot them with the bazooka and destroyed both the vehicle and the passengers. They then destroyed the buildings where the tanks were probably inside. By now, some of the rangers made it to the American quarters in the POWR, announcing that it was a prison break. And it took a while for the POWs to figure out what was happening. You know, initially they didn't understand and they were scared. They thought that it may be the Japanese coming to kill them all. So at times the rangers had to physically pick them up and move them because the, the POWs were either too scared or too suspicious to move. Eventually, as the precious seconds kept ticking, reality sunk in. You know, one POW was found crying in a corner, saying, I thought we had been forgotten. And the ranger told him, you're not forgotten. We have come for you. As I mentioned, the POWs were in horrendous physical shape with a thousand diseases, so you know, it was a very slow going for them to hobble along following the rangers. Some of the rangers cried in seeing how awful the POWs looked and how much they had clearly suffered. The rangers carried some of them on their backs and they felt as light as they were children because they were pretty much the same weight as children are. One of the POWs was so frail that he died probably of a heart attack before even reaching the front gate. Just as it looked like everybody was getting out safely, a Japanese soldiers managed to load a mortar to shoot at the fleeing Americans. Some of the men from F Company shot him dead, but not before about a dozen Americans had been hit by mortar fragments. The one most seriously wounded was Captain Fisher, the very medic who had insisted on joining the fight to help the others, and he was hit with a big fragment in his guts. The wipeout of Japanese troops inside the camps had happened with insane speed. The whole raid felt like it had barely started and the rangers were already retreating with the POWs along for the ride. It had been an incredibly efficient 
destruction and rescue operation. But just as it looked like the raid had ended without a single death on the American side, you know, there was a question about Captain Fisher, but that was about it. Just as they were on their way out, a ranger named Roy Sweezy was shot to death. And according to some witnesses, he was killed by a man from F Company who mistook him for an enemy. Everyone was out of the camp within 30 minutes from the beginning of the fight. Well, almost everyone. There's actually a crazy story about one of the POWs who was uh, completely deaf, so he had fallen asleep and hadn't noticed anything. None of the insane chaos going on around him, bazookas, fighting, hundreds of people getting shot around. He didn't notice any of that. He just rolled over and went to sleep. Talk about a surreal moment when he woke up the next morning and he was the only guy left in camp and he took a walk around and noticed the whole camp destroyed, uh, hundreds of Japanese corpses and nobody else around. Now, lucky for him, the Filipino guerrilla went back and they fetched him, so he was saved too. But back to the previous night, in the meantime, Captain Pajota's men what had happened with them? You know, they had gotten into a big fight at the Cabo River Bridge. The Rangers couldn't tell how the fight was going. You know, they were afraid that maybe the Japanese there would break through the lines and reach them. They would reach the carts with the water buffaloes and there would be a big battle there. But what had happened with Pajota was this. Right after the beginning of the raid, Pajota's men opened up on the Japanese in the camp. Uther Hampton Sides writes, They fired with the hatred and the vengeance that had steeped in three years of mostly unexpressed resentments. For the Rangers, the killing was a necessary and perhaps momentarily enjoyable, but no especially gratifying aspect of the mission. For the Filipinos, it was personal, tribal, national. They considered it a blessing of fate, long overdue, to strike back at the invaders with all they could bring to bear. So the time bomb they had placed under the bridge exploded on cue. However, it didn't take down the whole bridge, just a part of it. Good enough for it not to be, you know, so that tanks couldn't cross the bridge no longer, but, however, foot soldiers were still able to use it. So, Right off the bat, what they had to deal with was 50 Imperial soldiers charging across the bridge. The guerrillas mowed them down. So the Japanese commander in camp sent some more soldiers, and again they were mowed down. The commander kept sending more and more to their deaths. You know, not exactly brilliant strategy. You know, this guy could not exactly be accused of being overly sentimental about wasting his men's lives. A Filipino man who had just learned that very morning from a ranger how to use a bazooka managed to use it very effectively and destroyed several tanks that were parked along with one truck full of soldiers. The Japanese were fanatically brave with little concern for death and seemingly more than willing to die for their country. And Pajota's men were more than happy to oblige them in that regard. If uh, dying for their country was their goal, 
Well, Pahota's men would make sure that they achieved their goal. They killed about half of all the Japanese in the camp. No soldiers, luckily, had approached Captain Hoson position, the other guerrilla leader stationed on the other side. You know, the Japanese in the city had not really been aware of the raid, and as I mentioned, it helped that the guerrilla had cut the camp's phone lines before the attack. Had they found out, it's very likely that most of the guerrilla, the rangers, and the POWs would have never seen another dawn. So on their way back, the rangers with the POWs and some of the guerrillas made a quick stop at Plateros, the little town where they had stopped the night before. Fisher was operated on by a Filipino doctor. His wound was terrible. He really was no shape to fool the man or even be carried before moving him further would certainly kill him. So a few men had stayed behind with Fisher. But when hours later they would hear reports that the Japanese were spotted close by, they risked it all and decided to move him. So in a new town, just a bit away, everyone there volunteered to level a rice field so that an American plane could try to land there to try to evacuate Fisher. But despite this heroic effort by all the villagers there, Fisher died before the plane could arrive. In the meantime, the rest of the rangers, along with the POWs, were moving as fast as the water buffaloes would go, which is admittedly not very fast, but better than nothing. Throughout the night, Muchi reassured the POWs and provided much-needed leadership. A ranger named Thomas Grace said, you would have followed him to hell that night. The POWs were, not surprisingly, in adoration of the rangers. A POW named Bob Body said, as far as we were concerned, they were gods. Now, since everyone was fatigued beyond belief, I mean, for the rangers, they maybe have had something like five hours of sleep over the last three days. Muchi passed to them a whole bunch of pills of benzedrine, which is basically an amphetamine. During World War II, between Allied and Axis soldiers, it has been estimated that 72 million pills of amphetamine were consumed. That's a lot of drugs. A lot, a lot, a lot. Hitler himself was a big fan and consumed in massive amounts. But, you know, yeah, consumption of amphetamine was really high among soldiers on all sides during the war. When they arrived at Rizal Road at 2.30 a.m., this was a very dangerous moment since it would take them a half hour to cross with everyone and the road was still in Japanese hands. But they got lucky and no Japanese showed up. If things hadn't been stressful enough already, the rangers now face yet another obstacle. Their path took them through a village controlled by a rival guerrilla group. Now, let me explain. This other guerrilla group, they were a mix of communists with some Catholic socialists who were very much opposed to the Filipino wealthy landowners exploiting the poor, just as much as they were opposed to the Japanese. And they did not particularly like those guerrilla groups allied with the Americans, because they felt that the Americans only supplied those other groups, but not them, 
since there were quite a few communists in their midst, and so the Americans decided not to give them any supplies. So the rivalry between the guerrilla groups working with the Americans and this more socialist-slash-communist group had been brutal. In some occasions they ended up shooting at each other, just as readily as they would shoot at the Japanese. So when they approached this village, they were told that the Americans may be allowed to pass. Actually, first they were told that nobody would be allowed to pass. Then, after some negotiations, they were told that the Americans could pass, but the other guerrillas could not. But by now, Mochi's patience was down to zero, so he told them that he would have the artillery destroy the village if they didn't let him through right away. It was a rather tense situation, but he worked out. You know, as they walked through, they were stared at with absolute hatred as they passed through the village, but no one fired a shot. And it was not long after this that Mucci got a pleasant surprise for a change. In the previous three days, American lines had moved a lot closer in his direction, so that he, his men and the POWs reached safety much sooner than expected. A million things could have gone wrong during the raid and led to the death of everyone involved. Instead, every single thing had worked almost miraculously. You know, in total, four Americans had died, two POWs because of poor health, and two rangers who were shot. None of the guerrillas died. The Japanese, on the other hand, hadn't been so lucky. About 1,000 Japanese died in fighting against the rangers and the guerrilla during the raid. You know, some accounts put the figure at 1,275, but let's say somewhere around 1,000. General MacArthur himself was so pleased with how things turned out that he gave a service cross to Mucci and to Prince, saying, nothing in this entire campaign has given me so much personal satisfaction. For the POWs, of course, what had happened was nothing short of a miracle. They had all been at deaths, doorsteps for the last couple of years, and even more so at this time. And instead now, most of them would be shipped back home, except for those too sick to move and some of the highest-ranking officers who would have to wait. Along with them would go home some of the survivors of the Palawan camp massacre. By the time they got put into the boat that would carry them back home, they took a long detour to avoid submarine attacks. You know, the trip would take over a month. The Japanese were adamant at trying to wipe them out. Tokyo Rose was the name given by the Americans to all female radio broadcasters who were part of the Japanese Department of Propaganda, it stated, at this moment, the murderers and criminals who took advantage of our Japanese guards at Kabanatuan are boarding the American ship General Anderson in Leyte Harbor. They have been spreading malicious lies about the Japanese people, Japanese warships, submarines and planes in the Pacific have been alerted to destroy the ship at all costs. So, while trying to avoid getting shot at by submarines, on, you know, while that was definitely weighing heavily on their minds, the POWs had a chance to spend a month eating as much as possible and trying to get their weight back. By the time they reached San Francisco, they were given a hero's welcome. 
Um, they received a personal call from President Roosevelt. Now, of course, not everything was fun and games. You know, more, many of them would end up with major PTSD, which, you know, clearly not fun and something that would affect the rest of their lives. But but they were alive. They would have lives to live still. After the raid, Eduardo Hoson would become governor after the war. Uh, Juan Pajota would also become military governor. On the other hand, General Masaharu Homma was held responsible for the Bataan that march, even though no one could prove that he was aware of the atrocities, let alone authorize them. His wife had asked MacArthur for clemency, but MacArthur didn't grant it. So Homma was executed by firing squad in 1946. Masanobu Tsuji instead, the man who most likely was indeed responsible for ordering many of the atrocities, he escaped to Southeast Asia. He eventually returned to Japan in the 1950s, was completely unapologetic about his role in the war, and would become a member of the National Diet, which was Japan's legislator. Eventually, in 1961, he disappeared while he was in Vietnam, and many, many people hope that his end was terrible, since he's probably the most awful character in our whole story. In many ways, you know, this whole thing I've been telling you, this whole story, is as much of a feel-good story as one could tell when discussing warfare. Well, I mean, clearly not very feel-good for all the Japanese soldiers who were blasted out of existence, but that's the nature of the business. You know, killing is obviously an intrinsic part of warfare. In most cases, however, killing is where it begins and ends. You know, sure, one can rationalize that they're killing the enemy, serving the greater good. And in some cases, that may be true. But there's still a gap between the killing and the greater good. The link is not so direct. In this case, on the other hand, the link is immediate. The battle, as bloody as it was, saved the lives of many. After the shooting stopped, all one had to do was look at the over 500 POWs who would have almost certainly died had it not been for the raid. And this is why the guerrilla and the rangers who participated in this operation derived incredible pride from the roles in this story. Robert Prince would have this to say. I'll be grateful for the rest of my life that I had a chance to do something in this war that was not destructive. Nothing for me can ever compare with the satisfaction I got from helping to free our prisoners. And uh, my guess is that when talking about warfare, this is as good an outcome as one can possibly wish for. <laughs>